We are in Jude, chapter 1 tonight. We are in Jude 1, verses 3 and 4. And I'll set this up for you, for those of you who were not here last week. Okay, there's, you got to get caught up in the story that's taking place. Jude writes this letter sometime between 68 and 70 AD. Now, there's not a whole lot known about this man other than the fact that he is one of Jesus' brothers, a half-brother of Jesus. And like many of Jesus' family members, including Jude, he did not become a believer until after the resurrection. Now, of the 25 verses in Jude, 19 of them can be paralleled and found back in 2 Peter. Which leads many people to the conclusion that Jude at least operates so much in functionality as a sequel to 2 Peter. Where Peter writes in a future tense, Jude writes in a present tense. And so Jude comes on the scene last night in his greetings in verses 1 to 2. And this is the overarching theme. Your status, your security... It's based not in how good looking you are. It's based not in what the world says it should be. Not in how talented it is that you are. Your status and your security is based in Jesus Christ. Jude identifies him right out of the gate. He says, I am a slave of Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. It has even nothing to do with the fact that he's a slave. It has everything to do with who the owner of the slave is. Christ. He wants his believers to see themselves as secure and safe, not because of any external circumstances, but because of who their owner and who their master is. He goes on to tell them last week in the greeting, you are called, you are beloved, and oh, by the way, you're kept for. You're called. You are special. You are chosen, believers. Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me Unless the Father who sent me draws him. You can't come to Jesus unless the Father who sent him draws you. That's what Jesus says in John 6, 44. And you believers that Jews write into you, you've been called. And you're not just called, but you're also beloved. You know, it's one thing to tell somebody, God loves you. Jesus loves you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. It's one thing to say that, but it takes it to a whole new extraordinary level to say, you're beloved. You're beloved. This idea in the original language of being beloved, it's a love that doesn't just happen here in the present, but a love that goes to eternity past, through the present, and into the future. And I remember last week I illustrated this point, a conversation I had with my good, my good buddy uh, Tim McMeans. Uh, Army chaplain, I said, Tim, I was talking to him this summer at Fort Knox. I said, so tell me, when did Jesus save you? And he said, Joe, Jesus saved me before the foundations of the world. Kind of a strange thing you might hear someone say. At least I kind of thought so. But then I kind of reflected on what he said for a moment. And I thought, that sounds really familiar. And so I turned to Ephesians chapter 1 to illustrate this idea of being beloved. This love that doesn't just happen in the present, but has happened in the eternity past, to the present, to continue to the future. In Ephesians 1.4, he says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. You're not just called believers, you're also beloved. And oh, by the way, you're not just beloved, but you're kept for. And I know this idea of being kept for is one that many of us struggle with today. All the time, Satan loves to come and lie to us and attack us and make us think that maybe we're not really saved. That we're not really Christians. It's a struggle that you're not the first person to be facing. And so Jude reminds the believers that you are kept for Jesus Christ. Imagine if a hundred full battle rattled ready army rangers surrounded this building with 360 degree security. You might feel pretty secure. Or you might wonder why there are a hundred army rangers here. Imagine if there was a hundred special forces operators here. Or if you're Navy, I know Titus is, a hundred seals here, whatever. You feel pretty secure, right? Jesus, Paul Jude says that you are kept for believers. Literally in the original language, the word kept for means to be under guard. You're kept for Jesus Christ. You're called, you're beloved, and oh by the way, you're kept for. When people come and say, Joe, can I lose my salvation? My short answer is no. My short answer is Jonah 2.9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You can't lose something that doesn't belong to you. That's my short answer. The creator of the universe has kept you under guard. And no one, as Jesus says in John 10, can pluck you out of my hand. You're kept for. And because of that reason, the believers may experience mercy, peace, and love. May it be multiplied to them. Why? Because of all the things... I just said to you that Jude said to you. And so that sets us up for verse 3 tonight. He says, beloved. Verse 3. Beloved. Now, he doesn't say beloved because these believers are more special or they're his favorites. He says beloved because he's trying to draw this identification that he sees these people the way that God sees them. Call Beloved, kept for. He sees them that way. And then he says, Beloved, although I was very eager, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith. Okay, so, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith. For the faith. He's very eager. He's making every effort. So here's Jude. He sets off and he's he's like, all right, I gotta sit here. I'm gonna start writing this out. I wanna write something, you know, safe, something really encouraging, you know, kind of make a safe the whole family type thing, real wholesome. We're gonna talk about common salvation. And perhaps even as he's writing, there's a knock on his door. Maybe a messenger comes in. Some word is brought to him. And he is alerted to the situation that is currently happening. A situation that Peter spoke of years prior. A situation that is running current. That is running live right now. A situation that has come to Jude's attention. And because of this... Jude feels an urgent need, a call to battle for these believers. And so Jude encourages these believers to take the appropriate action. 
He sets off. I'm going to start writing about their common salvation. He gets word of this other situation that he feels is just urgent. And so now he is trying to encourage them to take the appropriate action required, which is to contend. They are to contend. In the original language, this idea of contending conveys the idea. It could be a a conflict, a contest. It could be a debate or even a a legal suit. But the word contend is actually used rather sparsely throughout the New Testament. But it's very common in extra-biblical Greek. And it would usually refer to an athlete within a stadium contending. And so we see this idea, this, this relationship between this contestant contending, struggling to win this prize. And this idea and imagery that Jude is laying up for the believers. That they need to contend, but not for some prize to be won in the stadium. For them, they are to contend for something else. The faith. They are to contend for the Faith, but not just any faith. You know, I, I got a chance to talk to a lot of soldiers this summer while I was at Fort Jackson. I was training second and first lieutenant army, well, soon to be army chaplains, but I was training them. And I got a lot of, a lot of opportunities to, to do, do counseling and to share the gospel. And I was always interested because I'd be talking to them and they'd say, oh, I believe in God. And I'd be like, oh, cool. Which God? Um, no, no. Or they'd be like, oh, yeah, I pray to God. I'm like, oh, which God? And they, uh, well, you know, like, <laughs> nervous laughter. <laughs> Fair question? I think so. Especially in today's pluralistic society. Which God do you pray to? So Jude is very specific. He says, you're to contend for the faith, not just any faith, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You are to contend for the faith, verse 3, that was once for all delivered to the saints. This phrase, it was once for all, shows us something special. It shows us that it was accomplished. It shows us that there's no need to revise it. Hey, there's, there's no software update we're going to need to download. It's good to go. This faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, it is sufficient. We don't need any updates. We don't need any revisions. We don't need to edit anything. It's good. And so, this teaching, quite frankly, is at odds with a lot of other teachings. This teaching that this faith was once for all delivered to the saints is at odds with many world religions such as Islam and Mormonism which would tell you that the writings of the New Testament were ultimately corrupted. And because of that, God had to give additional revelation in the Book of Mormon and in the Quran. Which, I don't need to go into any detail and for the sake of time I won't, but contradict the New Testament at many points. But not only this, this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, it is also in opposition with the Roman Catholic view that official church tradition, in addition to scripture, has absolute divine authority. So the Roman Catholic idea is that, yes, scripture is authoritative, but church tradition is also. 
So the, the same level of equal authority. Oh, by the way, church, church tradition can be updated whenever you know, we need to update that. What I need you to understand is that Jude's letter, excuse me, since the letter of Jude was included in the New Testament canon, his letter must have also received early apostolic endorsements for inclusion. And everything in Jude's letter is complete in complete accord with the apostolic teachings and writings of the early church and with the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I'm so glad he's so specific on this, especially in our pluralistic world that we live in today, which holds truth to be relative, whatever you want it to be. That's why I always like to, people say, oh, I pray to God, I believe in God. I always like to say, oh, which God are you talking about? Because I don't know. And I'm not going to presume to know. So he goes on to say this. Back. Think about it for a second. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I was thinking about this yesterday. I was preparing the sermon. Why might he say that? Why might he say the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? I thought about this. It's a legitimate question. So I started thinking, perhaps he, he knows something that we don't know. He says the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Doesn't need any updates. Doesn't need any revisions. Doesn't need any edits. Because the issue that he is encountering, people are trying to twist it. People are trying to edit it. People are trying to update it as they see fit. To make it fit with whatever they want to believe. And it is for this reason that he writes in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. Main point, spiritual pretenders. There are spiritual pretenders. And Jude sees them as posing a very clear and present danger to the church. The fact that he says that they have crept in indicates that they weren't always there. But they are now inside. They have infiltrated the church. And Jude is attempting to unmask them. Because they are a real and present dangerous threat. So he's going to levy one of, excuse me, four different charges against them. First, the first charge that he's going to make against them that we'll see here is that scriptures condemn them. The scriptures condemn them. The second thing that he's going to charge them is that they're they're godless. They are godless. And the third thing is that they change God's grace into a license to sin. That's number three. They change God's grace into a license to sin. And number four, they deny Jesus Christ. But don't take my word for it. Let's see it in the book. So for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They long ago were designated. In the original language, we're seeing this perfect tense of this word. Uh, long ago were designated, or even beforehand, they were marked out for this condemnation. And I, I think this is really important, what Jude is going to reveal to us in that statement, that long ago, they were designated for this condemnation, because it shows us a beautiful attribute of God, namely, His complete and total sovereignty. Uh, this is what didn't happen. God didn't get Gabriel and Michael together and be like, Gabriel, Michael, come here, guys. What is going on? Gabriel, 
I told you I was taking a four-day weekend. You're supposed to have this. I get back. I'm Jude's writing this letter. What is happening? God, listen. Michael, I, I stepped out for just a few minutes. I asked Michael to cover down for me. Listen, I don't want to hear it anymore, okay? We've got a serious mess going on, and you guys totally let me down, and now we've got to figure out what's going to happen. It's a silly, imaginative conversation, but one that never took place, because God cannot be caught off guard. He cannot be caught off guard. God is the shot caller. He is the quarterback who throws the pass, and it always goes where he intends for it to go, even if it doesn't make sense. See, God's not caught off to this situation, which is why Jude says it the way that he does, that these spiritual pretenders were long ago designated for this condemnation. God is completely and totally sovereign, even over the bad things, even over the bad things in this story, even over the bad and tough, difficult things in your lives right now. And I'm sure some of you, it wasn't too fun of a week that you've had. And oftentimes the response is, is, come on, God, where are you? And part of the problem comes with our understanding of God. The prophet Amos, in the third chapter, in the sixth verse, he says something quite interesting to reveal more of what I'm talking about. He says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has brought it? Hmm. Ephesians 1.11, Paul says, God governs all things according to the counsel of his will. God governs some things? Nope. He doesn't say some things. God governs only the good things? Nope. He doesn't say that. God governs all things according to the counsel of my will. Nope. His will. You say, what do you mean by this idea that God is sovereign? Psalms 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he wills. He does whatever he pleases to do. He is the shot caller. He is the quarterback who throws the pass. And it's never incomplete. It goes exactly how he plans for it to go. Which is why he's not caught off guard when this terrible situation happens. When these spiritual pretenders infiltrate the church. And Judas having to write this letter. Oh, he's not caught off guard. He's tracking this from ages ago. I hope that gives you some sweet comfort, especially in those moments when you're having just a rough week. He also says this. They are ungodly people. They're ungodly people. I have a lot of conversations, and maybe you have conversations like this, I'm sharing the gospel with one LT. I remember it was, a, it was a rainstorm. He had brought over his cadets to chapel that night. Thunderstorm came. Rule is you're not allowed to leave the building. He didn't plan on staying there, but he wasn't allowed to leave for 30 minutes. Ah, it was like smelling blood, and so I just went over there to talk to him since he can't go anywhere. Uh, and we start talking. And uh, I'm sharing the gospel with him. And he, he says, well, hold on a second, sir. Isn't, isn't God also a loving God? Isn't also God a, a forgiving God? And I always say, yeah, of course. God's a loving God. God's a, a forgiving God. But God is also a just God who demands full payment 
or every sin. And of course, that last part, it doesn't usually sit well with a whole lot of people because ultimately they would really just rather presume upon God's grace and his goodness than ever consider the fact of other ideas like his justice and his wrath, which scripture also speaks of. Like they, they like to take their own talking points, borrow the parts of the Bible they like uh, that sound nice, and then kind of combine them with well, their own worldview so that they don't have to be held accountable, so that they can do whatever they want to do. And Jude says, this is exactly what has taken place. He explains it, that they have perverted God's grace into sensuality. They have perverted God's grace and sensuality. Why are they, why does Jude say that they are ungodly? The reason why is because they've perverted God's grace into sensuality. They have created this loophole by taking advantage and presuming upon the grace of God to do ultimately whatever they want to do. They create a license for them to, uh, to claim to be a Christian and yet kind of make it up as a I want to go. I'm on Facebook this summer and I see something that I thought was a joke. You see a lot of things on Facebook, right? You guys aren't ever on Facebook, probably. (laughs) I went to a, a Christian school in Alaska. 200 people in the school. 50 each grade. And uh, pretty much everybody knows everybody. One of my classmates, uh, Dez, she married a guy from the next class up. A guy in the wrestling team, his name was Judah. So over the summer, um, I see a post, and Judah's writing, and he explains that after talking to his family and getting the support of his wife, Des, and their kids, um, after going to many counseling sessions and therapy sessions, after undergoing a laser hair removal and hormone replacement, he has uh, made a decision to become a woman and to legally change his name to Lacey. That's not the surprising part. Throughout this post, two, if not three different occasions, the one thing that he maintained throughout the entire post is his Christianity, is his love for God. Time to get real? Yeah, it is. They pervert the grace of God and create a license for them to do whatever they want to do while still maintaining the fact that they're Christians. He says, essentially, they're spiritual pretenders. And people in our relative truth society that we live in today, they do this all the time. All the time. You know, I have conversations with people. I'm a Christian. Okay. I'm talking to guys. And a guy tells me, yeah, I'm a Christian. I love God. And then I find out that he's not married and having sex. I said, well, can you explain that to me? Well, well, God understands. No, he doesn't. Well, we're married in our hearts. 
No, you're not. Well, it's just a marriage license, just a piece of paper. That's, that's all it really is. It doesn't really matter. We're going to get married anyways. I love her. No, you don't. They pervert the grace of our Lord into sensuality. Maintain that they're a Christian the whole time. Create this license to do whatever they want to do. Still claim to be a Christian. Are you like them? Are, are you like these spiritual phonies and fakers? You claim the name of Christ, and yet you justify things you know the Bible says are wrong? Are you like them? So what are we to do? He says we're to contend for the faith. We're to contend. Remember this idea of contending? You say, how do we contend, okay? How do we do this? I say it starts, one, with knowing what the Bible says. Right? The Bible is the, the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. And so many of us, we don't even know what the word says. And there we are thinking we're going to step into the spiritual combat situation, pull out our... our Pull out our, our stuff. And we think we're ready to be combat ready, and we don't even know what this says. You want to contend for the faith? Jude's, Jude starts off writing about our common salvation, gets urgent news, says, okay, okay, start over. You need to contend for the faith, which once for all was delivered to the saints. You need to contend. How do you do that? Well, it starts, one, knowing what God's word says. Let me illustrate. I'm having a conversation with some soldiers. One guy, he's, he's not a Christian. Obviously, some significant things in the news happened this summer. Uh, so I'm talking to this guy. And we had a very cordial, very respectful conversation. Because sometimes we think, well, we can't contend because we don't want to be jerks. You can talk to people, have legitimate conversations, and not be jerks. And explain to them what you believe and why you believe it. There's nothing wrong with that. So I'm talking to this guy, and he says, well, the issue of homosexuality came up. And he says, well, that's not even in the Bible, is it? I'm like, well, yeah, it is. And he's like, well, it's just in that one really Old Testament passage that's really obscure, right? And I said, well, no. He's like, well, where else is it? And I said, well, for starters, Romans chapter 118 starts off in saying, for the wrath of God is revealed. Excuse me, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Then he jumps down to verse 26, and I read this to him. I said, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. He was like, I, I've never heard that before. That's interesting. 
1 Corinthians 6 9, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's a list of a lot of different things. But the idea is that if you don't repent from these things, regardless of which one on the list it is, you will go to hell. That's the reality. And of course he prefaced it with, don't be deceived. Why? Because people are all the time. And it is becoming more and more increasingly unpopular to contend for certain biblical truths that are in God's word. And it's not just the average guy or girl in any one congregation within Protestant America today. It's many pastors as well. T.D. Jakes. After, over the summer, some of you saw an article in the, in, the, in the news, and he said that after the court case this summer, his views on homosexuality are evolving. A lot of stuff happened with Hillsong Church, Brian Houston. I think he's coming to speak at Liberty this semester. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, get a, get a north-south from Haley. Yeah, that's true. Um, over the summer, it became known that there was a, a leader in the church, actually a couple, who were openly gay, Serving in leadership in the church. And then Pastor Brian Houston came and said, well, that's not actually the case. They haven't been in leadership in the last six months. It's like, okay, that's good because I like Hillsong. And then another article came and said, they haven't been in leadership in the last six months. But they're still members of the church, still openly gay, engaged to be married, and still serving in the church. Maybe he'll talk about it when he comes to speak. But probably not because the fact is it's not popular. And I don't care whether it's popular. We don't care whether it's popular. If you want to hear nice things, if you want to hear something that's popular and accepting by the world, there's a lot of other churches that I could recommend to you. God's word is becoming more and more increasingly unpopular. And Jude tells the believers in his day and age the same thing that I think we should be hearing today, and that is we need to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And I don't mean to be a jerk about it. There's ways, there's ways to do this. They're perfectly loving and perfectly respectful. How do you contend? You start by knowing what God's word says. You don't ignore the unpopular parts of God's word either. You don't pervert the grace of God into sensuality. You contend for the faith. You have intentional conversations. It's not your job whether someone believes what you say or not. It is your job to warn someone. If if you truly believe the things that this book says, then perhaps the most unloving thing you could do is to say, oh, I don't want to judge anyone. You know, I, you know, I don't want to, you know, insert my opinion and tell anybody else, you know, that what they believe is wrong. It's interesting, the logic behind that way of thinking. If someone's house was burning down outside and you knew that there was people alive inside that house and they were unable to get out, you would yell, you would scream, you would tear that house down if you had to. Because human life is sacred. You would do that. You would do that. If 
there was a bus coming down on someone, someone didn't see it, it doesn't matter whether you know them or not. You wouldn't say, well, I don't know if, it's, if, I really, it's, if I really should let them know because who am I to you know, impose my opinion? Maybe their house really isn't burning down. I mean, technically, that's only like 43% of the houses engulfed by flames, so... <laughs> Do you see a problem with that type of logic? Shouldn't we care that much more about someone's soul and where they'll spend eternity? Content for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, even if it's unpopular. And it will be more unpopular this time next year than it is now. We are to contend for the faith. And then he says this in closing. He says, these individuals, these spiritual pretenders, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And then here it is. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The point is ultimately this. Regardless of whether you call Jesus Lord He's clearly not your Lord if you tell him no. Like the spiritual pretenders here who have crept in unnoticed. See, the issue for them is not that they have false understanding of God. It's not that they deny that Jesus is their Lord. The fact is that they are denying Jesus is Lord by their very actions. You can claim to be a Christian. You can claim that Jesus is Lord all day long. But that means absolutely nothing if you presume upon his grace and pervert things that are true in this book for things that are not true. Matthew 7, Luke 6, Jesus says, On that day many will come, and they will call me Lord, and I will say, Away from me, I never knew you. And they will be cast into hell for all of eternity. You can't have Jesus as Lord or Savior. It's not an either or. It's Lord and Savior. The two go together. And you can't truly call him Lord and in the same sentence say no to the creator of the universe because I don't like that part. That is the peak of arrogance. To think that you know better in your finite brain than the one who spoke the world into existence. And that is the issue with these spiritual pretenders who pervert God's grace, borrow the things from it they like, claim to be a Christian, and ultimately deny Him by the very fact of the things they're doing. Are you like that? You make excuses and you justify the things you know are wrong and still claim the name of Christ. Well, it's, it's only whatever it is. It's, it's I'm not really cheating. It's only porn. It's not that big of a deal. I was only joking we do things like this all the time and we justify things that we know are clearly stated in Scripture. We need to contend for the faith.
We need to do that, and we need to be willing to do that. We need to be willing to do that and have intentional conversations with people. If you love them, then you have an obligation to warn them. You don't have to be a jerk about it. So many people think, oh, that's just so judgmental. There's a difference between judging and condemning. And we'd all be wise to learn and understand that. God, my prayer tonight is this. That if there are some of us who are more like these spiritual pretenders than we are actually like believers, that you will convict us right now of whatever those things are that we are doing in perverting your grace. Whatever stupid, dumb, foolish, moronic excuses that we make to justify things that we know are clearly wrong in Scripture. I pray that you would give us a like mind, a mind like yours, and that we would have the courage to act on these things. I pray that we would have the courage to contend for the faith. One, that we would take the time to know what your word says. And two, that we would be intentional for the most unloving thing that we could possibly do is to not say anything to a world who is dying, to a world who is going to hell. We need your help, Jesus. Amen.